I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 as we continue our study of John's epistle and particularly we're going to begin looking at verses 19 to 24 this morning. 1 John chapter 3 verses 19 to 24. Would you uh, please join me in prayer asking uh, for the Lord's help uh, for this time. Uh, Lord God, we want to thank you that you are a God who is all-consuming. You're a God who is all-consuming in your love. You are all-consuming in your wisdom. Lord, you're all-consuming in your grace and mercy. And we just thank you, Lord God, that, that you are such a God, that you are trustworthy and faithful, and that you have given us your word to guide us and instruct us, and that because you are a God who does not change, your word is unchanging, and we can study your word, though given thousands of years ago, Lord, as if it was given yesterday just for us. Lord God, teach us and instruct us through your word. Help us to rightly understand your word. And Lord, uh, just ask that you would work in us to either build assurance of salvation for those who are truly saved, for those who are not truly saved, just ask you to bring clarity to their precarious situation and that you would lovingly and sovereignly draw them to yourself in saving faith, that they too might believe and be saved and know that. Thank you, Lord God, that you are a God who, who saves and redeems and you love it to be so and you want us to know that. We just thank you that you are a God who completes what you have begun in your children's lives. Help us as we uh, study your word together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at the topic of assurance uh, in a message I've entitled Blessed Insurance. Surely you've heard the hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. So it goes the hymn that Fanny Crosby wrote in 1873. That enduring hymn, we are told, came about when Fanny Crosby Uh, was fully blind, but nonetheless overflowing with joy. And one historian noted that when she visited the home of her friend, Phoebe Palmer Knapp, in Phoebe's home was the largest pipe organ ever to be installed in a private residence. Phoebe had a new melody that she had just composed, and she asked Fanny to listen to it. After playing it a few times, Phoebe asked Fanny, What do you think? the tune says. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, Fanny answered, and then using her wide knowledge of scripture, she continued with, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. No doubt you've probably sung that hymn many times. For Fanny Crosby, assurance was not just something that went with the tune, It was a tune of her heart already, long before the melody was composed. For Fanny Crosby, assurance was a blessing that she personally possessed, which is the only reason that she could ever write that song. And she personally possessed assurance because she knew she trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. And she understood the Bible's teaching about assurance of salvation. And rightly understood, assurance is for the genuine believer. And for the genuine believer, it's a real blessing. Now, the blessed assurance of which Fanny Crosby knew and wrote is often misunderstood today. It is denied, and it is twisted. 
The doctrine of assurance is something we can truly call a battlefield between truth and error. Depending upon one's status as a child of God or a child of the devil, the evil one will either seek to tear down your assurance or he's going to seek to build it up. If it's genuine, if you're genuinely saved, Satan will seek to tear that down. If you are falsely convinced that you are a Christian, that is, you're a mere professing Christian, but you have not been born again, Satan will seek to build that false assurance up. See, he's the father of lies. The one who has lied from the beginning will seek to deceptively build up fake assurance of a false believer and tear down genuine assurance of the true believer. Satan seeks to kill to steal and destroy. And he wants all false Christians and those merely professing to be Christians to have the assurance of salvation when they really are not. I mean, if he can't get people to deny God altogether, he's okay if you acknowledge God, but, but acknowledge God in the mere sense that the demons do and that they, they acknowledge that there is a God and yet that at least they shudder. Many unbelievers don't, but they go around masquerading as Christians and as believers And so they walk around in this deception on their way to hell, though thinking that they're on the way to heaven. They are on the broad road when they think they're on the narrow road. And for these, their assurance is really a mist, a vapor, a cloud without water that will be revealed for the lie that it is on the day of God's judgment. But beloved, also understand that the evil one seeks to tear down the assurance of genuine believers. And he does this to destroy your life. He does this so that you would have uncertainty and doubt and even discouragement that you are genuinely saved. The confusion regarding assurance uh, that Satan has sown has borne much fruit in today's Christian world, in the realms of the broader Christian church. And I use that term, kind of I should use it with air quotes, Christian, because there are many things today that claim the label of being Christian, which uh, really deny the very essence of what it means to be a Christian, biblically speaking. There are those who deny that any Christian should have assurance. They say Christians should not have assurance, and they, they keep people thinking that they could lose their salvation almost at any moment for one sin or another, so that no one knows whether or not one is truly saved. And this is true of many times of, of Catholics as well as some Protestant churches. This, this damning teaching is used to try to control people to keep, to keep people coming back to church. I remember a story of Pastor MacArthur when one of the many times that he went to Russia uh, preaching over there and he was teaching on the whole aspect of the assurance of salvation and also uh, the perseverance of the saints And one of the pastors in conversation afterwards says, well, if these things are true, because they generally aren't taught there in the church in Russia, at least they weren't at that time. If these things are true, how do you get people to come back to church? That was his question. Do you understand the mentality? You don't need to come to church if you're a genuine believer in order to maintain your salvation. That's, That's not at all why you come. Why we gather together. But, but there have been many errors like this taught about assurance that, that hurt people. And as, as I've said before, about when we talked about sanctification, bad doctrine hurts people. And bad doctrine about assurance hurts people. 
But there's no excuse for believing bad doctrine. God's given us instructions clearly in his word, and God has in his word clearly spoken on the topic of assurance through the pen of none other than the Apostle John. He makes it painfully clear, and anybody that teaches to the contrary is ignorant of the scripture or just flat out denying it or overlooking it intentionally. God is not silent. And not only are we going to deal with that very specifically in verses 19 to 24, but you could say in a a sense, God gave us a whole letter. A whole letter, beloved, to help us understand whether we are genuinely saved or not. God does not encourage doubt. He encourages clarity among his children. Think of it this way. If God has redeemed someone... Why do you think that he would keep it hidden? That he wouldn't want them to know that? Do you think he would want to redeem someone and say, I don't really want you to know what I've done for you. I just want to keep you guessing. That's not God at all. God does not keep us guessing in regards to salvation and what he is going to do. He has has given us salvation and he wants us to know that he wants us to know that it's, it's a work that he has begun and he will complete it. And he wants us to be assured of that fact. No matter how discouraging sometimes we get because of our own sin. Because of the sin that so easily entangles us and ensnares us. But beloved, understand that, that this morning's message is geared to building up the assurance of the true believer. Right? So the message this morning is not for everyone that is here. Because there probably is somebody here that is not genuinely saved. So you must understand that the the words this morning as we go through this text must be applied in a different sense. You must look at it as an invitation to call upon the Lord for salvation and for the assurance that only He can bring you. We do not seek, uh, nor did John, to build up any kind of false assurance. What we're talking about this morning is true assurance. This morning we're going to be looking at, at 1 John 3, verses 19 to 24, where the Apostle John faithfully wrote of the true believer's grounds of assurance. Now, God desires that his children know that they are truly his children. I mean, can you imagine? Just look at it in a physical sense. Can you imagine looking at your child and saying, well, I'm going to treat him like my child, but I don't really want him to know that he's my child. I mean, that just, that just defies human logic right? for, for someone who is godly and Christ-like. So, so too, it defies God's logic to say that he doesn't want you to know that you're saved if, you, if indeed you are saved. So through John's Pen, God details for us at least six contributors, or I'll highlight six contributors, or I'll call them six builders of assurance of salvation. And we um, will take, just get started in this this morning. But before we do get started, let's turn to the text and read it together. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. 
The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. May the Lord bless the reading of his words in each one of our lives. Beloved, note the grounds of assurance, the builders of assurance for the true child of God. The first one that is highlighted for us in the first part of verse 19 is that blessed assurance comes from sacrificial love of the brethren. Blessed assurance comes from the sacrificial love of the brethren. This should not come as a surprise, considering what John's been talking about in the context. John begins verse 19 with, by this. The English text usually begins with, we will know by this, but the Greek text begins with, by this. Very clearly indicating the means by which we are to know something. And and it forms the hinge point between what John's been talking about with love and what he's going to be talking about with assurance. And surely you picked up on the fact that John's already dealt with assurance here and there. He is is really rallying this and and, and using this as a summary of the things that he's discussed in chapter 3 regarding the practice of righteousness and the practice of loving the brethren. So this verse points us backwards and it is a hinge point forwards. And he says, by this we will know. John says, by this we will know. Now, now don't let the future tense, will know, um, confuse you. John is not talking about a future assurance. This is not something that the true believer uh, just looks forward to in the future. This is a present reality, what he's talking about. He's using the, present, he's using the future verb to, to uh, reference a, a, a prerequisite that has to be fulfilled before you can have this knowledge. What is that prerequisite? The prerequisite is that you sacrificially love the brethren. That you sacrificially love the brethren. So by this, we will know that we are of the truth. The term uh, of the truth is, is similar in construction to the phrase uh, we saw in verse 8 when speaking of those who practice sin. Verse 8 says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. So the, the Apostle John uses the term of, in that case is of the devil, to, to link the person who practices sin with the devil because the, the devil sinned from the beginning. Notice the linkage. All through this passage runs the theme of like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. Right? That's, that's the idea, that the children of the person are going to be like the person. So the children of Satan are going to be like Satan. They practice sin like he practices sin. He's practiced sin from the beginning. The children of God practice righteousness because God is righteous and always does what is righteous. And God is love. And God loves us, has loved us in a great sacrificial way and calls us to love each other likewise. So John is using similar terminology, but this time he says we're of the truth. We're of the truth. By this, by the sacrificial love of the brethren... And remember, we're talking about, we say brethren, we're not talking about just the sea of humanity, about loving your neighbor, although we're commanded to do that as well. This is a specific love. This is a love for God's people. Dare I say it's love for the church. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about 
the church. The church has really, in some ways, become a hated topic in many people's lives. They've been hurt by the church. They've been misled by the church. But you can't jettison the church, as I've said in other messages. If you can say that, well, I love other Christians, I just don't love the church, then your love is skewed. You must realize that Christ died for the church. He wasn't just interested in saving individuals. He was interested in building a bride. And the bride is the church. One person isn't the church. And yes, I know there's the church invisible, but he works, God works through the church visible. They're together, they're not disjointed, unless it's a false church. If it's a true church, those two go together. So, so John is saying, if you love the brethren, by this you will know that you are of the truth. And, and really, this is like so many of the things John says is an echo of what he heard Jesus say. You know, Jesus, Jesus said that, he only, that what he taught, and he only said the things that he heard the Father saying, heard the Father teaching. He only did the things he saw the Father doing. In other words, his every pulse was the Father's expression. That's why he is God incarnate in every way. In a much smaller sense, the Apostle John is trying to emulate what Christ did of the Father. John is taking the things that he heard from Jesus' lips and expounding upon them through the power of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit inspired John to write these things. So many of the things that John says are really things that he heard Jesus say. This this whole phrase, you are of the truth, is an echo of Jesus' words in John 18, 37, where Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In other words, if you're not of the truth, you're not going to hear the voice, his voice, but everyone, everyone who is of the truth, that is everyone who has been born again, everyone who is a true disciple of his will hear his voice. Beloved, if we are, if we are regularly living uh, as, a, as a pattern of life, sacrificially uh, loving the brethren, in deed and truth, as verse 18 highlights, in deed and truth, then we can know that we are of the truth. This means um, that, that if we were to use like verse 17 uh, to transform it into a positive illustration, that when we see a brother or sister in need and we have the ability to meet that need, that we actually give generously to meet that need. Because as John says, if you turn your heart against him, you close your heart against him, how does the love of God reside within you? It doesn't. But if it does, beloved, that is grounds for building assurance. So sacrificial love for other Christians is one of the true indicators that someone has been truly born again, is of God, has eternal life. By this we will know that we are of the truth. Now, beloved, we need to be careful that, that when we look at this, we're not, we're, not, we're not grounding our salvation in our love. Right? There's an important distinction. We are never saved by our love. We are never saved by what we do. Sacrificial love for other Christians, sacrificial love for the church, right, is a true indicator that someone has been truly born again. 
of that conversion. It's a fruit of salvation and not a grounds of salvation. But that, that sacrificial love is a, a, uh, a means by which, a God-given means, I should say, by which our assurance is built up. So, so much. So much for those who say you can't have assurance when you hear that and it is widespread. Know that that person is either deceived, hasn't studied the word of God well, or seeks to deceive you. Either way, don't listen to them. Whatever case it is. Because God's word clearly says, by this you will know that you are of the truth. It's very clear. It's very clear. There's a debate sometimes about the different interplay of the Greek words. But the important part is, God makes it clear. You can know that you are of the truth. Do not listen to those who say otherwise. The practice of sacrificial love for Christians, the practice of sacrificial love for the church, speaks so clearly and so loudly of one's salvation that Jesus said this. John 13, 34 and 35. He told his disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Listen, beloved. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The message is so clear that the unbelieving world gets it. When, when, they, when there's genuine, sacrificial love for the church, even the world sees that you're a follower of Christ. Right? This isn't talking about a love that, 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 like the world defines love and that we just love each other and get along and accept each other for where we are. That's, that's not at all how John is defining love here. And we can't twist Jesus' words or John's words into meaning that like our culture wants us to do. We don't love people by accepting bad doctrine. Bad doctrine hurts people. And we must hold, uphold true and biblical doctrine so that we love people and help them. So, Understand, beloved, that blessed assurance comes from sacrificial love of the brethren. But now let's look at the second point. Blessed assurance comes from reliance upon God's omniscience. Blessed assurance comes from reliance upon God's omniscience. And we see this in the second part of verse 19, running through verse 20. Reliance upon God's omniscience is the remedy for a believer with a condemning heart. Let me say it again. Reliance upon God's omniscience. Let me define that, because not everybody may know that. God's omniscience means He knows all things. Reliance upon God's omniscience is the remedy for the believer with a condemning heart. Notice where John takes us in the end of verse 19. After he says, we will know this, that we are of the truth, he says, we will assure and will assure our hearts before him. Before him. Think about that. Be who he's talking about. Before God. Before him. As you think about sacrificial love for the brethren, as you think about your love for the brethren, and, and the high standard that God calls us to in loving each other as Christ has loved us, you might not be so assured of your salvation. Because maybe your love isn't 
isn't what it should be. And by that, I don't mean that it's perfect. We're never perfect. We don't, we're not perfect people. We don't have perfect love. But as you look back on, your, on the pattern of your life, you don't see a, a great and burning love for the church, a great and burning desire, uh, sacrificial desire. I'm not talking about emotions, but, but of actions of love for the church. And this might be especially true when we consider things from God's perspective. And that's what John is really taking us to, to God's perspective before him, before God. So the world recognizes genuine love of, between brothers of Christ. But, but the important part is, what does God think? Not necessarily what do others think. What does God think about our love? And John uses the term before him, to, to meaning before God, to set our perspective on love from God's viewpoint, not a man's viewpoint. So what would God say about your love for the brethren? God knows you. He doesn't have to analyze you. He knows you. He knows you so well that he knows the numbers of the hairs on your head, right? which are ever decreasing for some. But God doesn't have to count them. Keep that in mind. He doesn't have to count them. He knows them because he's God. So he doesn't have to sit there and count. He just knows because he's God. That's how in-depth his knowledge is. Something so trivial as the numbers of hairs on your head. Trivial, right? But he knows us to that extent. How, what would God say about your love for the brethren? What would he say? Now he knows you're not perfect, so your love is not perfect. But, but are there certain failures of your love of the brethren that plague or haunt you, that, that cause doubt regarding your salvation? If you're honest, you'll probably say yes. Yeah, there, there are times where I, I didn't. I didn't love the church. I, I, I didn't help my brother or sister in need. And, and maybe, maybe the financial aspect isn't so appropriate necessarily in this setting, but the time. Think about time. You know, John uses the example of, of having the world's means uh, when a brother in need and, and not giving him what he needs. But there are other ways in which we demonstrate sacrificial love to one another. It's not just all about finances. Certainly, if there is a financial need, that need needs to be met among the brethren. Right? That is our duty and privilege to one another. But that's not the extent of this. So as you examine your life, perhaps there are things that, that you say, well, golly, it, 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 I didn't love that person as I should have. And, and it causes some doubt. What do we do then? Now the idea of being before God, in the presence of God, should really not be new to the true, genuine believer. We understand that there's a sense in which we are always in God's presence. Now, for many years, and this is probably true in even some churches today, there's a, they, they seek after God's presence. And what they mean by that is some feeling. And I've had people tell me that they just don't feel God's presence and then they go somewhere else, right? We're not talking about a feeling when we talk about God's presence. Just like God's omniscient, God's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He's not in everything. But he's present everywhere. 
And for believers, he's present through his Holy Spirit. So there's, there's more than one way in which we could say accurately that God is present everywhere for believers. So in a sense, all of our lives is, are lived before God. R.C. Sproul and other faithful theologians have used the term quorum Deo to refer to this truth that we are always in the presence of God. Quorum Deo is a, is a phrase that I first heard from R.C. Sproul many, many years ago, shortly after my conversion. It was a truly life-transforming idea. It helped me understand that, that since we live our lives, quorum Deo, always before the face of God, always in the presence of God, we we cannot compartmentalize our lives. We can't act one way on Sundays when we're together and then act a totally different way when we are not with each other. It's the same sense of which, um, we've talked about this before, that, that your obedience becomes easier in the presence of the one you're accountable to. So, it's easier to keep working and maintain work when the boss is present. But what happens when the boss isn't present? Unfaithful workers will slack off. They'll talk. They won't get as much work done as when the boss is there. So in the same way, when we, when we as Christians consider that we are and, and understand that we are always before God, always in his presence, it helps us keep shorter accounts There's nothing that he doesn't see. You can be all by yourself, turn the lights out, close the curtains, and he still sees. Darkness does not face him. He can see as well there as he can anywhere else. You can't hide. There's just nowhere you can hide. And that's a good thing for us as believers. It's a haunting thing if you're trying to get away from God. So understand that that's what John is is pointing us to when he says before God. God sees the good, we do what's right, the bad, and the ugly. He sees it all. And so with that in mind, he's, he's talking about assurance of the heart in light of that kind of gaze. How do, you, how do you have assurance with that kind of knowledge and gaze? He says this, we will assure our heart. Before him we will assure our, assure our heart. Now, understand, beloved, the word assure here is a, mean, is a word that means to persuade. It means to believe, trust, and it's typically translated in this context as assure or reassure. But it has the idea of persuade. And we need to understand how John is using the word heart. Uh, we use the word heart in our Western culture to, in a metaphorical sense to, to refer to the seat of our emotions, For example, the phrase, I love you from the bottom of my heart, is an example of that kind of talk. It speaks of the world's understanding that love is a feeling, and that when I no longer feel that love, I can just simply move on, because I can't really control my feelings. So you just kind of move on, and you you go love somebody else from the bottom of your heart. It's all based in feelings. Well, you know that that's not how Scripture uses the word heart. And John is not using the word heart at all in a sense of feeling. What you might, you might think in a context where he's talking about like feeling conviction, where you are convicted about your sins. But he's not referring to feeling here. What is he saying? When our heart, uh, he says there, uh, verse 19, and we'll assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us. There are times where, our, where the heart condemns. What is he talking about? Well, he's using the word heart to refer to the inner man, which probably is not a surprise to you. 
The Bible often uses the term heart in that way. It's the, it's the immaterial part of you. It's the spiritual part of you. It's the part that was awakened and born again when you exercise saving faith. But John just isn't using the word heart just to refer to the inner man in a general sense. He's using the word heart to refer to a very specific part of your inner man, and that is your conscience. John is talking about your conscience. And and some Bibles uh, translate the word in this context, conscience, instead of heart for that reason, even though it's the Greek word for heart, if you were just to translate it literally. So literally it's heart. But what is he referring to? He is speaking of our conscience. And notice, this is very interesting, notice when he he talks about this, we will assure our heart before him. Very unusual. Our heart. You get that? Not our hearts, but our heart. It's, it's singular. And John does this about ten times in his writing, where he combines the plural pronoun and a singular noun. That's, that's not typical, and it would be incorrect in English, but that's the way it is in the Greek. That's the way the Holy Spirit had John write it. This is not by mistake. As one commentator noted, the construction stresses the oneness of the people in the experience or situation being described. So in a sense, this is something we all are going to experience at one point or another. A conviction of the conscience. When our hearts condemn us, when our conscience condemns us, what do we do? Now, I want to take a moment to explain the conscience. The conscience is our God-given internal mechanism that guides us in knowing what is right and what is wrong. It's that part that, that is very applicational. It's evident um, when we live our lives that our conscience either accuses us or defends us constantly. The conscience works with the law of God, which is written in our hearts, to accuse us when we do wrong and defend us when we do what is right. But beloved, be warned, the conscience is not infallible. The conscience can be misinformed. The conscience can even be deceived. For Christians, the conscience is transformed along with the mind by Scripture. It's important that we rightly inform our conscience. Paul says, kind of a, uh, an analogy to this, that, that it's a very important as Christians that we not go against our conscience. He says that even if, even if you, you think that something is a sin that is really not a sin, that, and a more mature believer sees that in your life, we are not to encourage that person to disobey his conscience. So, it's a, it's a very important truth, and, and you, I think you'll understand why in a moment. Never violate the conscience, even if the conscience is misinformed. The right solution is to rightly inform the conscience. To teach people the Word of God accurately, so that we accurately understand our obligations, what God wants us to do and not do, so that our conscience is rightly informed, so that we'll know to do what is right. But it is always trouble when we violate the conscience. If we think something is a sin, even if it's not, and go do it, that is a sin against God. You realize that? 
So if we think, I'm going to give a silly example just, just, just to show you something. If we think that it's a sin to chew bubblegum, and yet we go chew bubblegum, that's sin. Even though chewing bubblegum is really not a sin. It's not listed in Scripture at all. There's no reason for that to be listed as a sin. It's not. It's clearly not. Nobody's ever debated it as far as I know. I've never read that. There are debates about other things, but I think bubblegum is not one I've read about. Okay? But if you think that it's a sin, and you go do it, you've sinned against God. That's genuine sin against God. So never violate your conscience. So if you think something's a sin, but you're not sure, ask. Ask for wisdom. Talk to, talk to me as a pastor. Talk to one of the leaders. Talk to other godly, mature Christians. Get input. Study your Bible. And rightly inform the conscience. In this area of conscience, it's, it's like, um, this, is a, this is a danger for us as evangelicals that we tend to add to the word of God. We don't tend to take away. We tend to add to it. And so we add things like, uh, you know, don't drink beer, don't wear buttons, um, don't go dancing. And we tend to add, start adding all these things that, that someone might have the conviction of. I might have the conviction of them, but you may not. But the, here, the clear part is, none of those things are mentioned in the Word of God at all. So we need to rightly inform our conscience in order that we'll know the right thing to do or, and we'll know what not to do. But understand, beloved, that, that the conscience helps us from damaging ourselves. There's a great analogy to this in the human body. So God has given us nerves to help us. I'm not talking about emotional nerves. I'm talking about the physical ones, the ones that you have in your fingers and your toes all over your body. God has given us nerves to help us. These nerves are very practical. When we touch something sharp, we retract our hand immediately. And sometimes it's still too late. We've already cut our hands and have to go deal with that. But the point is, without that nerves, what would you do with that sharp edge? You would just continue to push that sharp edge right into your body, right into your hand or finger until it was severed totally. Or perhaps cut a, a major blood vessel and you bleed out and die. So your nerves keep you safe. Same is true with something hot. So our nerves help us to know that when we have touched something hot, to retract our hand. Because if you keep your hand on that thing which is hot, you will burn your flesh. Your flesh will burn. So much so that you may lose the extremity or may even die. You know, we used to, we used to think that leprosy was some kind of disease that ate away at your flesh. Really, leprosy at its core was the lack of feeling. So people couldn't feel when they touched something sharp. They couldn't feel how much pressure they were putting on, on something. And so they would, they would cut themselves and they would knock off fingers and toes and they wouldn't even know. They'd rub their nose and rub it so hard that they would just rub it raw. So the, the conscience is like the, 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 the nervous system of the body. It's designed to protect us. But when we ignore the conscience, we will harden or weaken it. It's much in the same way that, you know, uh, um, when you work a lot with your hands and, and digging or whatever it is, you, you build up calluses on your, on your hand. And 
in working, there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually a good thing because it helps you do your job. I mean, but that skin is now less sensitive. It's less sensitive to pressure, less sensitive to, to certain things. And, and in a similar way, our conscience can develop calluses if we continuously violate our conscience. Pastor MacArthur told of, a, of an air, uh, a South American uh, commercial uh, aircraft years ago, in which case after the pilots took off and it was a cloudy day and they were ascending through the clouds, the, uh, the emergency warning system came on, uh, basically told them to pull up. And it kept going off as warning, you know, these kind of warnings tend to do, and we're thankful that it does that for pilots. It, it kept telling them in English, pull up, pull up. And the South American pilots grew irritated. They saw their, their uh, elevation, their, looked at the altimeter and knew where they were kind of at and, and as far as uh, height from the ground. And they didn't figure that there was any kind of problem. So they essentially, and the voice recorder caught this, they've essentially said, shut up, gringo, and turned it off. Moments later, it flew into the side of a mountain. They totally ignored the warning system to their own detriment. It's a really good example of what happens when we ignore the conscience and we tell the conscience, just be quiet. I'm ignoring you. We do that to our own detriment. So God has given us a conscience so that rightly informed that, that we can avoid destroying ourselves and flying into the mountain of God's judgment. So a working conscience is a, is a good thing. And, and keep in mind, if, if, if our conscience is not what it should be, God can rejuvenate the conscience much in the same way that he rejuvenates the soul. Because none of us had a, had, a, had a really good working conscience before we were saved. So that's, that's God's business. But, but look at what John says in verse 19. We'll share our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us. Here, John is not just limiting this to discussion about sacrificial love. Whatever. Whatever it is. As you think about the gaze of God, those times, we will see that there are times in our lives where we went against conscience. We did the things that we knew we shouldn't do, or we didn't do the things that we should have done. There, there are going to be those times. There are going to be those times where our conscience convicts us. You know, it's those times where you brush up against something sharp or touch something that's hot. What do we do then? What do we do in situations? Do we ignore the conscience and pretend it's not working? Well, that strategy isn't going to pass God's inspection. That's not going to pass muster with God, first of all. But understand that strategy will not result in building up your assurance. That strategy for the true believer will only weaken assurance and lead to doubt and discouragement. Beloved, we are to turn to the omniscience of God. Now, there's some who would say, man, that, the omniscience of God, that's scary. To think the God who is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, knows all things. Who wants to sign up for, for being examined by him? He knows it all. He knows every single sin. That's the point. That's the point, beloved. Understand, we need 
to rely upon God's omniscience and the completeness of his salvation. You see, that's why John's pointing us to this. Because you're saved by faith. Faith that Christ died for your sins and that upon believing in him, your sins were forgiven. They were judged at the cross. And understand, beloved, all of them were judged. If you're a genuine believer here today, Christ died for your specific sins. All of them. All the ones in the past. All the ones in the present. All the ones in the future. All of them. And so when our heart convicts us, we need to remember and rely upon the fact that God knows all our sins. And He knew all our sins, even the ones we would commit in the future, when He forgave us. When He caused us to be born again. When He made us His child by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we might be surprised at times by how evil our thoughts are. By the, some of the thinking, some of the thoughts, even if you don't act it out, some of the thoughts that you have, you find abhorrent. And that's a good thing, because the Lord is working in your life to expose the things that need to be exposed. But understand, even when we are surprised by our sin, or surprised by other sin, God is not. If you're a true child of God, He not only knew those things, but He's forgiven them. Beloved, that's not a license to sin. If someone takes that as a license to go sin, they are not genuinely saved. I, I, I can just assure you. You are not genuinely saved if you take the knowledge of what I'm saying to you and you just go run in sin. Right? Because John says that. If you practice sin, if you run in that, that's practicing sin. He says you're, you're a child of the evil one, not a child of God. But to the child of God, God's omniscience His all-knowing marries up with his all-encompassing mercy and forgiveness. That love which washes over us. We realize that he has forgiven us. I mean, we proclaim salvation by faith and faith alone in Christ alone. It's not of works, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. It's not of works at all so that no man may boast. But understand, beloved, if we're not saved by works, we're also not lost by works. That's, that's the corollary truth. If God has saved us, he's transferred it into the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of darkness. He's made you his child, and there's not a single thing that you can do or that Satan can do to remove you from that realm. And that's why we call it blessed assurance. That's why Fanny Crosby says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Purchased child of God. God is so gracious. When he makes you his, he forgives your sins, all of them, wipes them out. And he forgives you. So when you are convicted of sin by your conscience, 
The first thing is, make sure your conscience is rightly informed. You might be convicted of something that's, that's not necessarily a sin, but, but you think it's a sin. So rightly inform the conscience. But if your conscience is rightly informed, rely upon it. If it accuses you, go to God. You know, beloved, there's a wonderful illustration of this in Scripture. A wonderful illustration of it. You, you, that um, you know, and we've, we've actually taught through this, but I want to turn, turn you to that passage in closing this morning. John chapter 21. Peter, the Apostle Peter, becomes for us a great illustration of this truth. After Jesus' resurrection... Jesus meets with his disciples, and chapter 21 talks about, picks it up kind of there. It says, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will come we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Well, you know the story. Jesus appears upon the shore, tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat, even though they spent all night and caught nothing. They catch this great quantity of fish. And by that, the Apostle John recognizes it is the Lord. Peter uh, th- throws on his cloak, which he had taken off for fishing, and jumps in to meet the Lord. And he meets with them, and what do they find? But Jesus has cooked breakfast for them. So in verse 12 we pick up. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. And this is now the, the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus and Simon probably uh, took a walk. They had some unfinished business. You see, Peter had done what? Three times. Denied Christ. Three times. You know, we look at Judas Iscariot as having committed a grave crime against our Lord, and indeed he did. But I would argue that Peter, Peter's sin of denial, was nonetheless severe The difference between Peter and Judas Iscariot is not the level or severity of the sin. It's what they did with it. It's what they did with it. Judas ran away from the Lord, committed suicide. But Peter went to the Lord. What do you do when you're convicted? You run to the Lord. And so there's a little conversation with, between Peter and Jesus I want to pick up on, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, tend my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Beloved, understand what's going on. Jesus is reiterating, questioning 
Peter's love, not for, he's not questioning him because Jesus needed to know information. Jesus knew all things. But he's questioning Peter three times, I think, in a, in a parallel response to Peter's three denials. And this third, third question where he asked Peter, do you love me? He's, he's, Peter becomes very grieved. And we're not told why he was grieved other than he asked three times, but, but it go deeper than that. Why is Jesus asking me these? Why does he keep asking me the same question? Does he not believe my answer? And then his heart, he remembers his three denials. It's like, oh yeah. You know, before that, I was a big mouth. I said I would die with Jesus. I said I would go with him in his kingdom. I'd be willing to die for him, take up the sword and die for Christ. But when a simple servant girl asked me if I was a follower of Christ, I denied him. So Peter doesn't try to muster up his own love or try to qualify or somehow say, yes, Lord, my my love for you is, is enough. What does he do? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He appealed to the omniscience of Jesus and knowing whether he loved him or not. And Jesus affirms that love by giving him the command to tend my sheep. If Peter didn't love Christ, he would not have given Peter that command to feed the sheep, nor would he have made made him an apostle. But Peter, by his falling uh, so gravely, and yet being restored by Christ, shows us what we are to do when our conscience convicts us, when our conscience assails us, when our conscience brings us to the place of discouragement and doubt regarding our salvation. What will we do? Think about how Peter thought about that. Think about how much in despair he was. Think about how discouraged he was. No one here living today, living and breathing today, can ever face that kind of discouragement. You can face severe discouragement, but not like Peter. Not having seen the Lord face to face and having denied him even while Jesus was still in the courtyard. But the Lord restored Peter. But you see how Peter turns to God. And you appeal to the Lord's knowledge You appeal to the Lord's complete forgiveness, his complete mercy, and the fact that he has made you his child. Blessed assurance, beloved, comes from sacrificial love of the brethren and reliance, reliance upon God's omniscience. The world flees from God's omniscience. They hate God's omniscience. But the true believer loves God and relies upon God's omniscience. Because it means he's never going to be surprised. He's never going to find something and say, oh, sorry, I made a mistake. You're out of here. Right? God won't do that. Next week, we'll look at the other God-given builders of assurance that John provides us in this passage. Now, let's pray together. Our Lord, our God, we uh, just want to exalt you. I want to thank you that you are the God who saves and redeems Thank you for giving us this example of Peter. We're not excited that that Peter failed you. And yet, thank you for recording that for us so we see how you restored him and we see how he turned to you. He relied upon your omniscience, 
your graciousness, the fact that you're abounding in loving kindness and so quick to forgive. He relied upon that, Lord. And through that, you built his assurance. And even so today, Lord, for those that are convicted in their conscience of sins against you, that you would help them to run to you, that you would clear their conscience, that you help them to confess that sin to you and just take refuge in Jesus Christ. And Christ died and risen again on their behalf. Lord God, thank you for giving us these precious truths. So thank you for giving us instruction regarding assurance that we would not be in doubt, but that we could be confident of where we are regarding our salvation, that we could be confident before you uh, because of our confidence in Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.